We're going to be in the book of John this morning, John chapter 13. Um, as a church, we've been walking through the gospel of John, and there's, there's really only one gospel. It's the, this, the good news about our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, is life, death, and resurrection. But there, the gospel has uh, four authoritative um, version, uh, accounts of it. that They all complement one another, and they all fit together like puzzle pieces and help us to understand our Lord from four different directions. And um, the, the gospel, uh, the, the four gospels agree um, on so many things, and yet each one of the gospels brings its unique perspective. And um, the, the gospel of John is no different. The gospel of John was written so that you and I might believe, and that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the, the, the true I am, we might have life in his name. It's what he tells us why he wrote this story, this account. And in particular, um, the story that we are about to read this morning, the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, is um, perhaps a well-known story, and yet it is deep and layered um, and textured with meaning. So um, my, my prayer is this morning that I would be able to do it justice, knowing that um, the, the depths of what this passage has to teach us have not penetrated into my heart as fully as they need to. But my prayer is that um, you and I would all see with all the saints all, all the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God in Christ for us in this passage this morning. So if you guys don't mind looking with me in John chapter 13, John chapter 13 verses 1 through 20, it says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Father in heaven, one more time, we ask that you would penetrate, penetrate to the very meeting place, the convergence of bone and marrow, of soul and spirit. Father, we trust that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, we need such a sharp blade to cut through the callousness of our hearts. So, Father, would you be faithful to do that? You promised Peter in this passage that what you were do what your son was doing then, he he did not un- Peter did not understand then, but he would understand later. And Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this. And we pray that you would keep that promise not only to Peter, but also to us. I pray for this in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. If you had one day, one night, one evening with some of your closest friends and family, perhaps, what would you spend it doing? Would you spend it going to a movie? Would you spend it talking about a good book? Would you spend it giving them a piece of your mind? If you had one night, one evening before your death to spend with some of those who had spent nearly every moment of their life with you for the last three years, what would you do? Would you be full of self-pity and demand attention demand affection, be the center of the conversation? Or would you bow down and serve them? The story that we have today is, as I said before, one of the the most profound, most well-loved, most well-liked stories in the entire Bible. Um, it's, it's a story that has depths, depths to to plumb that perhaps we will not even reach today. And it's it's a story that is textured and layered with with meaning and a perspective of our Lord that 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 shines through this passage. And so today what I want to do is I want to talk about the story, the story of what's happening here. I just want to walk through the story. And then I, I want to talk about the reasons why Jesus does this. There's, um, I think, about eight reasons, at least in this passage, why Jesus would take this upon himself to, to bow down and serve his disciples this way. And, and then I want to talk about the reason beneath the reasons. That I believe there's one reason that holds all those other reasons up. And then we, we'll talk about um, applications after that. So what happens in the story? Well, this is the, the feast of the Passover. It's one of the holiest days of the year for those who are they're Jews in the first century. Jesus and his disciples had come up to Jerusalem to celebrate that event in Jewish history when, when God had brought his people out of the land of Egypt. When, when God had sent Moses like a deliverer to, to convince Pharaoh to let my people go, and Pharaoh refused, and so God uh, picked his ten fingers off the people of Israel with ten plagues. And the final plague, of course, was the, the Passover lamb where God commanded that a Passover lamb would be slaughtered and, and killed so that the angel of death would pass over 
the, would pass over the people of Israel. And so on that night, Pharaoh let the people of God go after the firstborn of every house in the land was, was slaughtered by the angel of death. And ever after since, God had commanded that the people of Israel celebrate and commemorate this event by sacrificing a Passover lamb, by, by putting the blood over their doorpost, by, by themselves atoning for their sins. And this is what Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem to celebrate, this act of God's great salvation and his deliverance of passing over the sins of the people of God. And so it is on Passover night that Jesus and his disciples are gathered in the upper room to celebrate. And Jesus, knowing that Satan has already put it into Judas's mind to betray him, and knowing that he's going to go back to his father, he's utterly confident in the father's love for him, rises from the table. And you can imagine there's this, this, this din, and they're talking, and there's conversation, and Peter and John are arguing back and forth, and Philip is not a conflict person, so he's just being quiet in the corner, hoping it will be over. And you can just imagine that a hush comes over the room as, as Jesus stands up. And Jesus takes off his coat, his outer garment, and he, and he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist. And one by one, he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Now, this would be um, an, an event that in our day and age would be strange. Somebody did this in the middle of dinner. Uh, and I've, we have dinner with a lot of people. No one has ever done that at our house. But in the first century, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that is audacious and strange and bizarre and possibly offensive. So you have to understand, the last three weeks that we've walked through John, John 12, and we've seen in each one of the passages that we've talked about from John 12 that Jesus is the king. He's been anointed as king in Bethany. He has, uh, he has been, um, he's come into Jerusalem like the, king, uh, the kings of old on a donkey. He's, he has come as a king, and John correlates this directly with the, the picture of the Isaiah saw on the throne that Jesus is king. There is no doubt after reading the last uh, chapter of John's gospel that Jesus has come as the king. In, in, in the ancient world, kings don't serve. Kings are served. For the disciples who are utterly convinced at this moment that there's, there's going to be any second now Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, the idea that the king would then dress like a servant and come and wash their feet was bizarre. But the notion of the service is, is particularly strange because in the ancient Middle East, the, the foot is the dirtiest part of the body. It, it's, it, they would wear sandals or, or bare feet and walk everywhere, and the feet would get grimy and crusty and calloused and cracked and bloody. And that was why whenever you come to a house, someone would wash your feet. But People who are free men, they don't wash each other's feet. That, that's unclean. That's what you have a servant do. That's what you have the lowest member of the household do. That's, that's why none of the disciples have done it yet. Because they're, they're disciples of Jesus, the Messiah, the King. They're not going to wash anybody's feet. But the King himself takes up a wash basin. And one by one goes from disciple to disciple, in hushed, awkward silence, scrubbing their feet clean with a towel. 
And he comes to Simon Peter, um, who has a constant case of athlete foot tongue, always putting his foot in his mouth. I love him. And Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Would you really wash me? Peter's perhaps the only one who was brave enough to say anything. And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. And Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Not going to happen. Not my feet. These other disciples might let you embarrass yourself. I'm not going to, though, Jesus. I will find a dog to lick me before I will let you wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no part in me. You have no inheritance. There's no connection. There's no relationship. There's no union with me. As we'll see from John 15, that you're not a branch grafted into the vine. And Peter says, and I believe this is hyperbole, Lord, not my feet only, also my hands and my head. If you're going to wash my feet, you might as well wash all of me. And Jesus doesn't actually disagree with Peter. This is perhaps the strangest part of this, that Jesus doesn't actually say, Simon Peter, you don't need, you don't need to be washed. He says you've already been made clean. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but, you are, but is completely clean or completely pure. It's a, it's a ceremonial word that they've been made clean, made pure. You are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. The, the apex of this is Jesus saying, you do need to be clean, but you're already made clean. I've already cleaned you. I've already cleansed you. I've already purified you. I've already removed your sins from you. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. When he he had finished the job, he puts on his outer garments and sits back down as as an esteemed rabbi. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus perform this action, which is, which is strange and not right, and it doesn't fit, and it's audacious and perhaps offensive and embarrassing and humiliating. Why does Jesus do this? Let me give you eight reasons. Number one, he knows that Satan has already put it into Judas's heart to betray him and that Judas is weak. He knows that Judas is weak. In fact, he's, he's known that for the whole time. He's already said in chapter 6 that Judas is a devil. He knows that Judas is weak. He knows that his time is drawing short. He knows that it's only going to be a few short hours before he is arrested. And before Peter, of course, opens up his big mouth and cuts off somebody's ear. But that's, that's coming. He knows that Judas has already been tempted and that Judas is weak. Number two, Jesus is so unbelievably, perfectly confident in the Father's love for him. You see that in verse three, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God. Who cares what people think of him? 
Who cares if this is humiliating or embarrassing? Who, like, honestly, who cares? He has the love of the Father. Who cares what Peter thinks? Who cares what the disciples think? Who cares what the Pharisees will say? Jesus knows who he is. He's confident. He's confident in who he is and where he's come from and his Father's love for him and that his Father will not abandon him or forsake him or leave him in the grave. He, he, he is confident in the Father's love for him. Number three, Jesus knows who his own are. Jesus knows who his own are. We see this in several places in this chapter. It says in verse 1, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. Jesus, again, will, will say it like this. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus knows who his own are. He knows who he has chosen. He knows who his disciples are. He knows who his sheep are. He already told us in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. He'll say this again in John 15, just a short time after this passage. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus knows who his own are. So he's confident that he is the Father's own and he knows who his own are. He knows whom the Father has given to him. Number four, Jesus wants to show them his identity. Jesus wants to show these disciples who are his, his identity. It's, it's his identity of, of the great I am. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen that there's been a series of I am statements. We've seen in John 6.20, for example, and when the, the disciples are in the boat and the, the sea is raging and the waves are, are roaring and the, and the storm is pummeling down on them and they're afraid they're going to be capsized and Jesus comes walking across the lake. And he says, it is I, or I am. It's the same word, the same phrase, the same name that the God of the Old Testament uses in the book of Exodus. When he reveals himself to the people of Israel and to Moses, when Moses says, who will I tell them has sent me? And God says, tell them that I am has sent you. So when Jesus says, I am, he's claiming that same divine identity. He's claiming to be fully God. We see that again in John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And John 8, 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We see the same thing here. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Jesus is doing this so that the disciples will know who he is as the I am. But here's the kicker. That's not the fullness of the identity that Jesus reveals in this passage. 
throughout the Gospel of John, um, hopefully you, you've been able to see there's dozens and dozens and dozens of connections to the book of Isaiah. One of my favorite books in the Bible. At some point, I'll take 10 years and preach through it. So good. And the, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before the Gospel of John takes place, had all these prophecies about the Messiah that was to come. We've seen a bunch of them as we've been walking through John. And about six or seven of them are prophecies that when the Messiah comes, he will be a what? A servant. When Jesus comes, and he comes to save his people, and when Jesus comes and he shows himself that he is God, he also shows them that he is the servant. He's the Messiah who serves his people, and he's the God who saved his people. Well, which one is he? Is he he Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, or is he the one who will humble himself unto death? Yes. In this passage, we see that Jesus is trying to communicate to them that yes, he is Yahweh. Yes, he is the glorious one on the throne. Yes, he is that one who's been anointed as king, who's going to reign and whose kingdom will have no end. And yet he establishes that kingdom through service. He reigns from the cross. He dies for his people. That's the identity that the disciples, they need to get in their mind that this is who Jesus is. He's the Yahweh who serves his people, the God who comes down from heaven and serves his people. Number five. Jesus, Jesus washes his disciples' feet to show them to give them a picture of what salvation is. Jesus washes his disciples' feet to give them a picture of what salvation is. It's not a coincidence that Jesus uses the word in verse 10, clean or pure. It's, a, it's, a, it's the word that has to do with ceremonially clean. That has... It's a, it's a word that refers to various rites in the Old Testament that you could have your shame removed from you and your sin removed from you. you, you there, there's all these ways in the Old Testament that you could become clean. And Jesus says, I come to clean you once and for all. To do what those Old Testament rites could never do. To do what they could do. To, to cleanse the heart, to purify the heart, to sprinkle your heart clean. Jesus comes to make us clean and pure to remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Jesus comes to, to, re, to put our sins into the bottom of the sea. Jesus comes to, to save us, to clean us from all of our shame and all of our regret and all of our pain and all of our sin. But not with a bath of water, but by his own blood that he will shed in just a few short hours. That, that blood, the cleansing laver of Christ, the, 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 the blood of Christ that bleaches us clean. That, that's what Jesus is trying to give them a picture of, that when he comes as the Passover lamb, when he comes as the sacrifice, his blood will be shed for their sins. And again, in the words of Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become 
like wool. Why did Jesus wash his disciples' feet? To give them a picture of what it looks like that Jesus would come and die for their sins. This is why Jesus doesn't tell Peter, you're, 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 you're wrong, you don't need to be clean. He says, actually, you do need to be clean, but I've already made you completely clean. Once and for all, past, present, and future, your sins are removed, and I have made you clean. And not only that, but Jesus washes their feet, number six, to give them a picture of what it looks like to restore fellowship with him. To restore fellowship with him. You'll notice when, when Jesus and Peter have this dynamic and Peter says, well, it, it, you shall never wash my feet. And, and Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you don't have a share in me. And Simon Peter says, well, then I need the whole thing to be cleaned. And Jesus says, the one who has bathed, the one who's been made clean, the one who I've removed their sins for, the one who I've purified, the one who has no regrets or shame before me, that one doesn't need to be go back again and again and again to be resaved. That once I've cleaned them, once I've cleansed them, once I've removed their sins from them, there is no more penalty to be paid. Except for his feet. And what I take that phrase to mean is that Jesus is here trying to teach them that you and I are, are saved, and, and that salvation that we have is not something that can be lost, not something that can corrupt, not something that can decay, because when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of our sins. And, and yet, there, you and I know, who are Christians, that frequently, often, every day, we continue to let him down. Even though our sins have been paid for, we continue to go back to the same things. We're like dogs returning to our vomit. And what Jesus is trying to say is, you need to come to me again and again to let me wash your feet again and again. That your, your position in Christ has not changed. Your union with me hasn't changed. You haven't lost your share in me. And yet our communion gets disrupted when we sin. And so Jesus is trying to say, yes, if, you, if I've saved you, that salvation is, is past, present, and future, that everything in, that you need from me, you already have. And yet, when you and I sin, we need to return to the cross again and again to deal with our sins. And here's how we deal with our sins when we've broken fellowship with God. We don't prove that we're not going to do it again. We don't resolve, we don't try to, to outweigh the bad thing that we've done with good things. We, we deal with our disruption in our fellowship. We deal with the sins that we've committed the same way that we got saved in the first place, by letting Jesus wash us. When you and I sin and we fall down and we fail again and again, the way to be made right with God is not to prove that you don't really need Christ. The way to be made right with God is to come before him and say, just like you did when you first got saved, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is why First John says, if we confess our sins, present tense, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, same word, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, we return to him when we've sinned and when we've let him down, it's, it doesn't say he's faithful and just to require penance of us. 
It doesn't say he's faithful and just to, to force us to resolve to do better. It says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus washes the disciples' feet, not only to give them a picture of what it looks like to be saved in the first place, but to give them a picture of what it looks like to have fellowship with him restored, communion with him restored. Yes, if you and I are washed, we're cleansed, if we're purified by the cleansing blood of Christ, then, then our sins are removed and we're forgiven. We have a share in Christ. We're grafted in the vine. We have union with him. And yet when we, when we sin again, after we've been Christians, we, we disrupt our fellowship with him and we still need to return and, and let him wash us again and again. More on that later. Uh, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, number seven, to give them a picture of what it looks like to serve one another, to give them a model to imitate and to emulate. It says this in verse 12, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. And a little bit later, we'll talk about next week, he'll say in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Yes, Jesus' action uh, communicates to us that he saves us and cleans us and removes our sin from us once for all. And yet Jesus' action also gives us an example to imitate, to follow, to emulate, to, to try to replicate. So just as Christ has done for us, so we also ought to do for one another. We also ought to humble ourselves, confident in the Father's love for us, and serve one another. We, we also ought to do concrete acts of love towards one another, just as Christ has done for us. And also number eight... Jesus washes the disciples' feet to motivate us to receive service that others give us. Jesus says, you better not be too proud to receive me washing your feet. Most of us can get behind that. He also says, you better not be too proud to receive me washing you through my disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. See, Jesus knows our hearts. And he knows how proud we are and how hard it is to receive help. And Jesus says, I put these people in your life to help you. And in fact, when they're trying to serve you, they're just trying to follow my example. So don't be too proud to take them up on it. Because if you receive them, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. Jesus washes the disciples' feet to motivate them to receive the ministry of, of him through others, 
to receive the help that others give. Jesus knows that relationships are a two-way street. Not only should we serve, but we must receive the service that others give to us. That's how fellowship and community takes place amongst Christians. There's one person bearing another's burden who's also bearing their burden. And Christ is working in the midst of all of that to knit us together. These are the eight, the eight reasons, at least eight reasons, why Jesus washes his disciples' feet. But I'm going to argue that there's a reason underneath all of those reasons. That there's something more foundational, more rooted, that there's something deeper. That there's a, there's a reason that Jesus does any of these at all, that holds all these together. And the reason beneath the reason is because he loves his own who are in the world. Why does Jesus do these things? Because he loves the disciples. In fact, it's not just that he loves the disciples. It says that he loved them to the end, to the apex, to the climax, to the consummation. He he loves them as much as any one person could love another. Jesus loves his disciples to the end, the the fulfillment of love, the perfection of love. The reason that Jesus does any of this for the disciples is because he loves them. And therefore, therefore, he will show them this act of love. Jesus, on the night in which he is betrayed, the night in which Judas, in, in just a few short minutes, is, is going to sell him for 30 pieces of silver for some glittering metal. Jesus, knowing that it is only a few hours until his life will be demanded from him and his blood will flow out of him like rivulets, he loves his disciples till the end. He loves his disciples and therefore he wants to give them this picture of his love before Judas betrays him. He loves his disciples and therefore he wants them to understand what it looks like to be confident and rest in the love of the Father for the Son. He, he loves his disciples and therefore he wants them to know that he has chosen them and that he has loved his own who are in the world. He loves his disciples, and therefore he wants them to know who he is and what he's doing for them. He he loves his disciples, and therefore he wants them to know that he is washing them clean and pure. They need not be ashamed to fall before him. They need not be ashamed to come into his presence. They need not feel guilty when they stand before him because he does indeed wash them and clean them cleaner than any snow. Jesus loves his disciples and therefore he wants them to know that they can always return to him even after they've screwed up, even after they've gone into a far country, even after they have gone deeper than they thought possible. He will be faithful to forgive them. Jesus loves his disciples, therefore he wants them to have joy in loving one another. Jesus loves his disciples, therefore he wants them to have joy in in receiving the love that others give them. 
Do you understand that the reason that Jesus does any of this for the disciples is because he loves them? Think of this, the same God who brought heaven and earth into existence in seven days. The same God who met Abraham when he was in Haran and brought him into the promised land. The same God who was with his people in slavery and carved out the Red Sea so they could walk across on dry ground. The same God who met them on the mountain and caused it to tremble with thunder and lightning. The same God who met Elijah in the wilderness and he heard a still small voice. The same God who Isaiah saw on the throne, angels all around, singing to one another from end to end of time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The same God who Ezekiel heard to say, speak, and Ezekiel spoke, and and the, the bones came together, bone to bone, and sinew to sinew, and what was once dead became alive. That God got off his throne and came down to serve his people. That God, the God who is worthy to receive all honor and power and glory, that's the same God who came to wipe us clean, not with water in a wash basin, but with the crimson flow. Why does God do this? Because he loves his people. Because he wants them to love him. And he wants them to exult in his glory forever because that is the best thing for them. You all have heard me tell you about the story of Harry Morehouse before. Harry Morehouse was an Irish evangelist and scrawny and sickly. He met D.L. Moody when D.L. Moody was traveling through, um, through Great Britain on revivals. And, and he said, I'm planning on coming to the United States someday. Would you let me preach in your church? And D.L. Moody said, of course, whatever you say. You're hoping, probably just forgetting about it. Well, one, one day, many years later, D.L. Moody is on, a, is on another trip to Pennsylvania, and he gets a telegram that some scrawny Irish kid has just popped off a boat and said that you told him he could preach. So D.L. Moody, I think it was like a Monday night, said nobody's going to show up anyways. Why don't you just let him preach on a Monday night, let him hold a meeting on Monday night, and I'll deal with it when I get back. Well, D.L. Moody comes back a few days later. He asks his wife how, how this Morehouse fellow is. And she says, oh, he's great. He's nothing like you. <laughs> True story. And he says, what did he even preach on? And his wife says, well, he preached on John 3, 16, that God so loved the world. He told us that God loves sinners. D.L. Moody says, there's no way that God loves sinners. So he goes and hears this young Irish lad preach. And the way that he describes it, that his, he, he was crumpled into a ball weeping he realized that he had been preaching a God with a sword, which is true. It's biblical. God does have wrath and anger towards sin. And yet 
he had so emphasized that that he had let this other truth in Scripture that God loves sinners, that Christ came to seek and save the lost disappear. And Harry Morehouse preached for several more days at Moody's Church. Last day he got up and everyone wondered what he's going to say for his last day. And he he started off by saying, I have searched all scriptures for something to share with you before I leave. He said, but there's nothing greater that I could say to you than what I've already said from John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The Christian For God so loved you that his son would come down from his throne and live as a pauper, not a prince, and gather up this motley crew of disciples around him and wander from town to town in some obscure town, in some obscure province that no one had ever heard of, and come to Jerusalem on a routine festival Knowing, knowing well what would happen. Knowing that the mobs and the crowds that once led him into the city would put him up on the cross. That God, that Messiah, that servant, that Christ loved you and he loved you to the end. And so if I'm to apply this passage, we must start there that you and I must rest in the love of God for sinners. You and I must rest in the fact that the love of God is higher than any height and wider than any width and deeper than any depth and broader than any breadth. And all of God's love came to save you. There is no more love that God has to give you than what he's already given you in his son. He is not holding out on you. He's not holding anything back. He's saying, here it is. Take it. The apostle Paul tells us that for a good man, some might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us, oh, Christians, that we would know with all the saints what is the height and the dip, depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God in Christ for us. That we would have knowledge and understanding of, of the unknowability of the love of God which were promised in Ephesians. That we would be able to rest wholly and radically secure in the love of God for us. Of course, there's, there, there are practical things that you can do to train yourself to do that. That's why we talk a lot about reading the Bible. That's why we sing good substantive songs here on Sunday morning. That's, what, that's, why, that's why we pray here on Sunday morning. Because these things are, are primed to teach us how to rest in the love of God. And if I, if I can encourage you this morning, if, if, if you want to know the depth and the breadth and the width and the height of the love of God, but you are not reading your Bible, then you will never know exactly the, de- the depth of love that we're talking about that God has for you. If you want to know exactly what he's talking about, 
means that you and I must search the scriptures to understand all of God's love for us. Oh, Christians, that you and I would know this love, this God, this Savior. I'd also say number two, don't be proud. Don't be proud. If you come to this scripture, to this sermon, or to this story with a proud heart that is callous and exalted, then you will not be able to take hold of any of this for your life. Do you understand that if you are too proud to think that you don't need the love of God in Christ for you, you'll never search the scriptures for it. If you, if you are too proud to receive God washing you with the water of his word, washing you with his son, then you will never be able to receive the way that God serves us through one another. If you are too proud to, to see that God serves you, you will never serve one another. Your pride will lead you headlong into Satan's devices. And Satan is very good at manipulating pride. And and don't you know this? Like, isn't there something about this story that calls to the deepest part of your heart? That there's just something about the idea that, that true authority, true power, true, true, uh, kings would serve their people, which, which beckons to us this kind of humble humility, this kind, of, this kind of service that God renders unto his people, that even though it seems odd and awkward and out of step with this world, at the same time, it feels so right. Uh, my, my wife and I are re-watching the, the series The Crown on Netflix, and uh, we just got to the, the episode, one of the episodes where the crown are on the outs with the British public. And so they're kind of on a publicity campaign PR to try to up their reputation. Uh, and they're trying to figure, trying to find ways for the, for the, the people to, to love them. And they're just, they're trying their hardest and it's just as cheap and it's embarrassing and everybody can see what's going on. And, and this one reporter is, is just malicious and hateful towards them in the press. And, and they don't know what to do. Meanwhile, uh, the, the Prince of Edinburgh, is, um, his mother is staying with them, and she is a little bit kooky because she has given her, she's suffered great things, and she's given her life to serve. And so the, the family's trying to hide her in the back room so that she's not anywhere near, near the, the, the cameras, that nobody would see that this person, this, that, that this, this person who's lived such an abject life and chosen poverty and, and, and has given her life to serve others, that that nobody would see that she's one of them. But, of course, the climax to the story comes when, when Princess Alice, that's Peter's, uh, Philip's mother, who, um, is actually met by this one reporter who is so malicious towards them. And he's drawn into the great harms that she's endured and the great difficulties that, he's, that she has endured. And he finds her story so compelling. And he finds... The fact that even though she could have had everything that she ever wanted, she chose to not be bitter. And she chose to give her life in service of others. Of course, the climax of the story comes when Philip goes to talk to his mother about this and says, I, 
I've been holding you back so that nobody would ever see you, but I realize now that you should have been front and center. Christian, there's something about humility and service. There's something about considering others better than yourself and not having an overestimated view of yourself that is compelling. And Satan wants to keep you from it. Because it is the only way to true life and true happiness. It's the only way, the only way to understand all that God has for you is through self-forgetfulness. And oh, Christian, if you are proud, you will never see all that God has for you in Christ. So don't be proud. Number three, let Christ wash you. Let Christ wash you. Do do not be like Peter who stands up and says, Lord, would you wash me? Do not resist his his love for you. Do not resist his, his care for you. Do not resist the cleansing bath. You and I, our tendency is to say, Lord, you can wash some of me, this part of me that looks pretty, that doesn't stink, that doesn't smell, that doesn't have dirt and grime and shame and sin all over it. But the other stuff, I'm going to keep in the back. I'm going to shove it into a closet. I'm going to lock that door and put a deadbolt on it. And Christ says, that needs to get washed more than anything else. And he forces the door open and he cleans that too. And yet you and I try to hold still more back. We put it under the rug or we put it in the basement or in the attic. And, and, and Christ says that too must get cleaned. That too must get washed. And do not resist his cleansing touch. Do not resist that crimson tide. I wonder this morning, I wonder this morning if you've ever been washed by him. Uh, back at our last church in Indiana, we used to sing this song. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb, are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And the the last verse is an invitation. Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. I wonder this morning if you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I wonder this morning if you are gripping on to that stained garment, that stained sin that will never, ever give you peace. And I was just asked, why are you holding on to that? Can, that? can that really give you the satisfaction and the fulfillment and the joy that you desire? 
Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. I would also say this, number four. Do not be afraid to confess your sins to Christ. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've been made clean, if your sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away, do not be afraid to come near and to draw near and to confess your sins. It's the question that I ask people when, when they want to confess and talk, talk to me something. I'll say, have you made it right with the Lord? And what I mean by that is not, have you proven to God that you're worth keeping on his team? Have you done enough penance to come into his presence? What I mean by that is, have you brought your sins before him and let him wash your feet? Because he is not just faithful to forgive once. He's not just faithful to forgive seven times. He's faithful to forgive seven times 77 to in an infinite degree. So why when we sin and we let him down and we fail him and we, we fall down and scrape our knees again and again, why would we hold that back from him? Why would we think it is wiser and better to carry around this burden and this sin when Christ says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. Of course, a great way to to confess is to confess to one another that the Lord hears our prayers and sometimes we need to talk with somebody about what we've done. And if there's something weighing on your heart this morning, I encourage you to pull aside one of the members of this church. We would love to sit down with you and talk with you what it looks like if you are being burdened by your sin to, to walk with the Lord and to receive his forgiveness. So don't be afraid to confess your sins. But I'll say number five. Be on guard. Be on guard. It, you and I, when we see this story, ought to be terrified because Judas walked with Jesus every moment for three years. And, and yet his heart was never soft to the things of the Lord. He just had this little seed of greed. He just had this little venom, this little cancer, this little tumor that he didn't think anyone would notice. He didn't think anyone would, would, would care about. And it just grew. And Satan knew exactly where his weak point was. Do you think that Satan doesn't know the same about us? that thing that you're nurturing in the dark and hiding in the dark and you're hoping that nobody else will see, oh, Satan loves that mentality. There could be no greater attitude that is pleasing to Satan than that you and I would hide our sins from our Savior. Because Satan loves to tempt that and loves to provoke that and prod that until and nurture that and grow that and cultivate that until you and I cannot say no to his wiles. Oh, be on guard. We know this from First Peter. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Oh, be on guard. Number five. 
right? Six. Six. Just making sure you're paying attention. Number six. We see in this passage a model of what it looks like to serve one another. You know, the, the Apostle John is not the only one who points to the example of Christ's humility. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2. He says, Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, Christian, that you and I would look like our Savior, where we'd be willing to undertake concrete acts of love towards one another. We'd be willing to humble ourselves, to get off our high horse, and to wrap the towel around our waist and to wash each other's feet. That you and I would be willing eager to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of love. And if I could say this, number six and a half. If you are in any position of authority, whether you are a a boss at work or a leader in the church or a husband or a parent or a teacher, Christ has given you in particular an example of what it looks like to wield that authority in a, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. You know, one of the, the distinctive things about the Bible is that the, the ideal that it holds up for leadership and those in positions of authority is humble-hearted service. And if you're a husband, you know this because from Ephesians 5, what's the job of husbands? To, get, to be the head of the house. How? By giving up your life for your bride. For, for Christians, leadership always looks like service. It's not someone in a position of authority who oppresses their underlings. It's not class warfare. It's an upside-down kingdom where those who are higher are those who are lower. And those who serve are those who are first. And so if you are a parent or a husband or a church leader or a leader in the workplace or a teacher, Christ has given you in particular an example of what it looks like to serve those under you. This is why he says, do you call me teacher and Lord? And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For the Christian, leadership begins with humble, Christ-like service, where we would follow his example. Which means, number seven, that when others do serve us, we ought not be too proud to receive it. We ought not be too proud that when others serve us and others look for concrete ways to minister to us and others are following Christ's example here, we ought not be too proud and say, I don't really need that. You, you, you think God was, was just kind of absent-minded when he put those people in your life? You think God thought that was a mistake? 
that God knows that the way that relationships work is two ways, not one way, which means that when others serve us, we need to humbly say, thank you. I, I will never forget the, the, the ways that I was uh, told that by my eighth grade art teacher, Amanda Chartier, who I don't think will ever hear this sermon because technology is not her thing. And, and yet she, she would say to us when we were in eighth grade in public school, but she's a Christian, she said, you know, when somebody compliments you, they're trying to do something nice for you, and it's kind of a rude thing to reject that. Just say thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, Christians, that you and I, that you and I would be willing to receive the service that God gives us through others. And finally, number eight, do not let go of his love. Do not let go of his love. And so often when we are going through times of suffering and brokenness, times of trial and sorrow, so often when, we're, when, when the whole world seems like it's falling apart underneath me, so often when we are, uh, when everything in our life is, it, it seems like it's shattering, we start to doubt whether or not God loves us. We start to doubt whether or not God loves us till the end. And Christians, you and I ought to keep verse 1 near and dear to our heart in such times, that having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And that if he loved you so much to send his son to die for you on the cross, why would he desert you now? Do not let go of his love. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a king. A king who delights to serve because he loves us. We thank you that you've given us a king who serves us mightily. A king who welcomes all those who are dirty and stained. All those who are piled on with guilt and shame. Father, I, I know that our ability to plumb the depths of your love for us is by no means, by no means sufficient. And yet, we do not rest on our ability, but on yours. Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to die for us. And I pray that you would help us to lean into that love and to hold on to it tightly, even when everything else seems like it's falling away. It's in the name of your Son that we pray and that we plead that we would know with all the saints what is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God in Christ for us. So we pray for all these things in the name of your Son, our great Savior. Amen.